Amen. Amen. Well, in the beginning of chapter 3 in the book of Philippians, Paul warned the Philippian church that there was a small group of false teachers known as the Judaizers that they needed to be aware of. This group began to teach a false gospel. They began to teach that in order for your sins to be forgiven, in order for you to have a right standing before God, it was fully dependent upon one's own ability to be able to keep the laws and the commands of God. This is a false gospel. And so Paul strictly and strongly objects to all of this. And what he does is he begins to list seven impressive accomplishments on his, on his spiritual resume for them for all to see. And he, he does this not to brag in himself, but he, he does this to illustrate the point that if anybody was able to, if, if it was possible for a person to be able to gain right standing with God and to have their sins forgiven based on what it was that they did themselves, then he above everybody else would be able to do it. And so he objects against this teaching, and basically he goes on to say that all those things that he thought were so important, all those things that he thought were so valuable, uh, now, uh, in light of coming to know Christ, are nothing but empty, worthless garbage in light of the surpassing worth, he says this, of knowing Jesus Christ of knowing Jesus Christ. When Paul speaks of knowing Christ, he's not talking about knowing about him or knowing details about Jesus Christ. He's talking about a knowledge that is personal. He's talking about an intimate, relational relationship with Jesus Christ, something that you gain from knowing someone personally and intimately. And this is how he knows him. That relationship began uh, many years ago, actually 30 years from the point to which he begins to write this letter. He met Jesus in this personal way on a road to Damascus, on his way to persecute believers. And now 30 years later, he's writing this particular letter. And as he's writing it, he's looking back to his life and and he's come to realize two important things about knowing Christ in this intimate way. The first thing he's come to learn is this, is that the more he comes to know Christ, he realizes that there is more to be learned about him. There is more to know about this Jesus whom he loves. The second thing that he comes to learn is this, the more that he comes to know Jesus, the more he loves Jesus. There's one thing that we often, I think, forget. Maybe we don't put the correlation together, but there is a direct correlation between what we love and what we know. Stop and think about that for a moment. If you ever meet, meet somebody who loves baseball, I don't know why they would. But anyway, but if they really love baseball, uh, to be honest with you, big baseball fans, and you were to say, well, listen, what's your favorite team? What's your favorite player? They don't sit there and say, yeah, I love baseball, but I don't know. I don't know any of the teams. I don't know any of the players. Uh, that's more like me, all right? That's somebody who cares less about baseball. But if you find someone that really loves baseball, they know all the teams. They know the players. They know their batting averages. They know all all their stats, they know their record, they keep up with all these things. And so the way that you know that they, you love that team, they love baseball is because they know it. And the more that they know about it, the more that they begin to love it. This is true not only for baseball, but it's certainly true with their personal relationships. Right, men? You remember seeing that little schmoopy for the very first time? Your bride, first time you just saw her maybe walking by and 
you thought to yourself, man, she, she looks good. She looks nice. I think I want to get to know her. And so you're trying to work up kind of the courage to get to know her. And so you go home and you bang out about 20 push-ups, you know, trying to feel a little bit ripped. And you take a shower and, and, and you shave and you, you, you splash on a little Brute 33, right? Then you go and you want to get your best outfit. And so you get your, your, your bluest, stiffest pair of Wrangler jeans and you put them on. And then you go and you know you're going to introduce yourself. So you head out to go see her. Some of you know, all right, you older people know this. Younger people are like, dude, that's stupid, all right? Um, but you go out to see her and you go and, and, and you say, hey, girl, you know, how how you doing? You know, and uh, I've been stalking you. I mean, I've been watching you. I mean, I've been noticing you for quite some time. And, you know, I just, um, I like to get to know you a little bit better. So what do you say, you and I, man, I don't know, go out to, to dinner some point, and I mean, somewhere nice, not like McDonald's. I mean, somewhere like elite. We're talking Golden Corral. Where you, you want to go out with me? And, and if she says yes, you know, then you know it, the the rest is history. What you found is you saw something that you liked, and the more that you begin to know uh, that young lady, the more that you begin to love her. This is where Paul is. Paul has come to know Jesus Christ in an intimate way. In a relational, real, intimate way, he knows him, he's walked with him, he's, he's talked with him, he's been talked to by Jesus Christ, and he's learning more about Christ, and everything that he learns, he, he loves, but now he wants to know all the more because he wants to know and to love him all the more. This is where Paul is, and so what he does is before we kind of take the Lord's Supper this morning, that's kind of why we've gathered, I want to look at, at how it is that this Paul wants to know Christ two specific ways in which he wants to know him we want to look at this morning. First of all, he says that he wanted to know him in his power. He wanted to know him in his power. Notice in verse 10, he says that I may know him in the power of the resurrection. In the power of the resurrection. Now, if it's true, and I think that it is, if, if we were to say that God's love was most clearly demonstrated for us in his dying for us, this is what Romans 8, 5 tells us. He says, we know that he loves us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if that's true, that the greatest demonstration of God's love for us within his, was in his dying for us, then the, the power of God is most clearly demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His love and his death, his power in his resurrection. Now, we, there are different levels of power, uh, and we can grade them, and there's different types of grouping. One type of power is to be able to take life. And the truth is, almost anybody can do that. Even a little child can snuff out a rabbit ant, right? They can take uh, life. A, a, a nation, a powerful military, unfortunately, can wipe out a third of the population. We see that throughout history. But it's one thing to be able to have power to take life. It's a completely different category to be able to give life, to take life or to take something that is dead and to make it alive, that type of power is outside the ability of man to be able to do. Now, I know there are some maybe in the medical field, you're thinking to yourself, now wait a minute, uh, I work in an operating room when we bring people back to life all the time, all right? Let me, let me 
I'll give you that, but let me challenge that just for a moment. When, when they say, hey, the guy was dead, and maybe you read the book, dead for whatever, min- many minutes, whatever, whatever heresy that book was. But, um, it, you know, the person's dead for so many minutes, and, and, and they say, hey, he was dead for three minutes, and he wasn't breathing, and he had no heartbeat, and he was able to bring them back to life. Okay, I'll grant that. If you want to call that bringing back to life, that's great. But allow every cell in that body to die, and allow that person to be dead for three days, and then let's see if medicine can bring that person back to life. We know we have no power. That's why death is, is so hopeless, right? I mean, when somebody's dead, we know that that's definitive. That's the end. There's no coming back from that. And the reason is because man does not have that power. That power is reserved exclusively to God and God himself. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is found in Ezekiel chapter 37, you guys remember the story where God takes Ezekiel and he plops him down in the valley of dry bones? I love this story. There he is, and he's not, it's not full of carcasses, all right? This isn't a battlefield where everybody just died. This is full of dead bones. There's no flesh, there's no sinews, there's nothing left except for dried out bones. And God comes to Ezekiel the prophet, and he says to them, he says, son of man, can these bones live? And I love the way that Ezekiel responds to it. He says, oh, Lord God, you know. I, I love that response. Oh, Lord God, you know. You're like, well, what is he saying? What he's saying is this. He's saying, hey, look, from a human perspective, absolutely not. These are dry and dusty bones, but only you know if they can live because only you have the power to take what is dead and make it alive. So only you could know if they ultimately can live. It is absolutely essential for us to understand as believers in Jesus Christ that when Christ died on the cross, he was dead. He he, he wasn't mostly dead or almost dead. He wasn't sleeping or swooning, as some would suggest, when when, when they placed him in the tomb. He was 100% dead. There was no brain activity There was no heartbeat. Blood in his veins had hardened. They had coagulated. His body was riddled with rigor mortis. had set in. He was stiff as a board. And after three days, even as much perfumes as they wrapped him in, guess what? And I'll say this for some of you that love the King James. His body began to stinketh. All right? That's King James for you. All right? Began to stinketh. He was completely dead. So when God raises him from the dead, brings him back to life. He is not bringing him three minutes afterwards, but he is making sure that after every single cell in his body is completely dead and putrefying, that God comes and with his power brings him to life, back to life. Brain waves begin to spark, heart begins to beat, blood begins to flow, and the body softens as life begins to come back into it and fill his body. Now that's power. That's power. Now, the question is, what does that mean to us? What's the significance of this? Here it is. The same power that God uses to raise Jesus Christ physically from the dead is the same power that God uses to raise every spiritually dead person back to life unto God, to raise us up, to make us new creatures in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul had experienced. He experienced this on the road to Damascus. He knew what it was like to be dead in his trespasses and sins and trusting in his own goodness to be accepted by God. And then he knew what it was like for God to bring him back from spiritual death unto life. 
Every single person in here who has been born again has experienced this same thing from, 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 from one level to the next. Some may be more dynamic than others, but every true born-again believer experiences the power of God in them when they go from feeling the weight of sin and guilt and shame and the judgment of God and then to come to life and being released of all of it. Every believer in Jesus Christ comes to that. You've either experienced that, or let me say this, you need to experience that today through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we've all experienced that. But what Paul is ultimately saying here is, but that's not enough for me. It's not enough for me just to experience the power of his resurrection by me coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That is a power that I need to and want to experience every day of my life. And the reason for that is even though he knows that through his salvation he has been justified before God, he has been declared righteous before God, righteousness in a practical sense had not been realized in his life. There were all areas of his life that did not yet look like Christ. So even though he was justified and he was not yet glorified, which means that every day he would have to go through a sanctifying process. Anybody understand what I mean? And that means every day he was having to learn to die to self. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is what you and I ought to be doing. Dying to self, dying to selfishness, dying to our hopes, our dreams, all the things that we were before we came to faith in Christ. Paul wanted the old self-centered Paul gone, self-reliant, self-righteous Paul to die and then to allow, uh, to, to move into and be resurrected to a Christ-centered, Christ-reliant, Christ-righteous Paul. He wanted to die to all of those old emotions, all of his old desires, his old actions, his old attitudes towards Christ. He needed to put to death but in him putting them to death, he needed Christ to be able to raise him and a new life in Christ. New desires, new hopes, new dreams, new faith in, in, in Jesus Christ. Now, that, what does this do for us? It gives us hope. It gives us hope. This is what it does. First of all, it gives us a hope that God is powerful enough to change any human being on the face of the earth. Did you hear me? There are some in our church, and that I know very well, that your life is impacted by the sins of those people that are around you, and some of you in close proximity. Some of you are suffering because of the sin of a husband or an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving spouse. And every day is more difficult than the next because, because unless they change, your life is going to continue to be difficult. Maybe it's a, a rebellious child. I don't know what it is, but somebody else's sin is impacting you, and you come to the point. Here's what happens. That goes long enough you and I begin to lose hope. Because instead of going the right way, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much we try to share the gospel with them, they keep going the wrong direction. And sometimes if we're not careful, we see them as beyond dead. We see them like the, the bones, the dry bones in the valley, uh, 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 the valley of dry bones. And we think to ourselves, there's no possibility for this man to come back to life. But yet what the scriptures are telling us is when all seems hopeless and all seems gone, that the power of God can take that which is eternally gone and bring it back to life. They can change the person that you're praying for right now. But let me tell you what's even greater a demonstration of power than that. Is not only does it give us hope that God can change those around us, it, it, it's even greater demonstrated. His power of the resurrection is even more greatly demonstrated in the fact that he can change us 
when others around us and other, circumstance, other circumstances around us don't change. Because I don't know about you, but lots of times I, I think that my happiness and my joy is ultimately dependent on everybody else. If they would just change and do what Mike says, then I can be happy. If my, if my circumstances could change, then I would ultimately be happy. If my spouse, Larissa, would just begin to do exactly what I want her to do, then I can ultimately be happy. God, just change her life. Change her. Change my children. And so we have that hope. But the truth of the matter is what makes God's resurrection power all the more great is that if he changes nobody else, even in the midst of these difficult situations, he has the power to be able to change me. That he has the power to be able to love those that hate me, and spitefully persecute me. And you, he, he has the ability to be able to grant us love for those who are unlovable. He grants us the ability to be able to forgive again and again and again, even when sinned against again and again and again and again. That's where the demonstration of God's resurrection power is most clearly demonstrated. And that's the type of power that Paul wants to know every day of his life. The power to change others, and more importantly, the power to change himself. He wants to know Christ in that way. He not only wants to know him in his power, but number two, and we're halfway done, glory to God. Number two, he wants to know him. This is a little bit different, a little more difficult. He wants to know him in his sufferings. Now, no, notice how he says this next. He says, and that I may share his sufferings. Now, literally what he's saying there is, is that idea of knowing him continues. He's literally saying, I want to know Christ more by sharing in his sufferings. Sharing in the sufferings that Jesus Christ suffered while here on earth. That's how I want to be able to know him. Now, the word share there is the Greek word koinonia. And if you've been in church for any period of time, you know what that Greek word means, right? It means fellowship, right? And it's a very churchy word. It's become very churchy. Hey, man, let's, boy, that was some sweet koinonia right there. You know, that was some sweet fellowship, you know. People even say, "Woo, man, we, we, we need some more fellowships here in the church. Or, or man, what, what sweet. Hey, let's get together and let's, let's go to church. Let's serve together. But then let's go out and let's have some sweet fellowship. As though being together in the church wasn't fellowship, right? We, we think of it in terms of the three Fs, friends, family, Food and fun, that's four, actually. I don't know what happened. I, oh, throw family out. I didn't mean that. I meant friends, uh, uh, fun, and food. That's often how, how we end up thinking of these terms. But in the Bible, it goes well beyond that. Certainly can include those things, but goes far beyond that. When we actually talk about the word koinonia or fellowship or sharing in, we're, that's what we mean. We, we're talking about partakers in. We're talking about not just partaking in, but participating in. In fact, notice this just for a moment. In chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul uses the word koinonia, same word that he's using in this verse, and, and he translates it, partnership in the gospel. He says that when we have fellowship with each other, we are having partnership in the gospel. Do you know what that means? Not only living out the reality to ourselves, but we're taking the gospel and we're partnering together to, go, to spread it far and wide to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's a partnership that I like. Is that a partnership you want to be a part of? All right, That's fellowship that we're to be a part of. In chapter 1 and verse 7, just two verses later, he uses the same word koinonia, fellowship, 
speaking of partakers with me in grace. Now, I really like that, okay? I mean, I, I like the idea of working with you to get the gospel out, partnering together, but what I like more is us partnering together, receiving the benevolent grace of God. I can, I can sign up for that. But the Bible talks about another kind of fellowship here, and that is nobody's favorite fellowship, the fellowship of suffering. All right, we got sign-ups out at the desk, and, and I'm sure that a lot of people will be filling those up, maybe for the backpacks, filling that up, wanting to bring the backpacks in. But if we have a form and a sign-up for the fellowship of suffering, I just have this feeling that nobody's got to sign up. That's the one that's going to go blank. But even though we don't seek it, listen, and even though uh, we, we don't want to have anything to do with it, that's our natural tendency when it comes to suffering for the, for, for, for the gospel's sake, for righteousness' sake, uh, it is inevitably a part of the Christian life. It is, an, it is every Christian believer will suffer for righteousness' sake. Remember, we, we shared this earlier in the book of Philippians. We said that most Christians view suffering this way, that they're on the road to heaven and there are unfortunate times where they fall into places of suffering and they suffer, uh, they, they go through various sufferings. But the way that the word of God teaches suffering is that it's not a part of your walk with Christ. It's not a part of the path. It is the path. It is the path. The path of suffering is the path that leads to eternal life. Let me give you just a couple of scriptures. Just hang in there with me. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Luke makes mention there that, that when he and Paul were going throughout Asia Minor, listen to what he says. He says, we were encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Suffering as a believer in Jesus Christ is not an option. It's a guarantee. Then he goes on, li- listen to this verse. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul said, for you yourselves know that we, we are destined for this. He's talking about suffering. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has now come to pass and just as you now know. Did, did you see? It, it's almost kind of like you're trying to tell a new believer because they're all excited about everything through Jesus. You're like, listen, suffering is coming. And they're like, no, I didn't sign up for suffering. I, I came here to lack suffering. And then the more that you come to faith, Jesus is, or, or Paul's coming a long time and said, hey, man, remember when we told you that suffering was coming? You're now experiencing that suffering. This isn't a part of being a believer. This is the way of being a believer in Jesus Christ. One more scripture passage in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. We had already gone over this, but he says there, listen to this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We know, and we're on board with the idea of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that the ability to believe saving faith is a gift of God. We believe that. But what Paul is telling us is the gift to suffer is equally a gift of God to suffer for righteousness' sake, for the sake of Christ. And Paul's saying, this is the way that I want to know him. Now, why would this be a gift? I think two simple reasons. Number one is because suffering for righteousness' sake is evidence of true salvation. You know the story of the parable of the sower and the seed, right? 
So a lot of seed is, is sown, and, and some falls upon the rocky soil, and some fo- uh, falls amongst the weeds and everything else. And, and he says that some of it falls amongst the weeds, but when it begins to grow, it's then choked by the cares and the troubles of the world. What is he talking about? He's talking about suffering, and what do they do? They pass away. They die away. A true believer in Jesus Christ is those who are willing to suffer for righteousness' sake and they persevere through the suffering without rejecting or turning their backs on Christ, but continue to pursue him despite the suffering that they know that they will face. It's evidence of salvation. Uh, we, we, know that, we know that in Acts chapter 5, this is why the disciples, after they're imprisoned and beaten, when they leave, the Bible says they're rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Why? Because suffering for Christ was evidence that you're truly in Christ, that you were truly on the path that leads to Christ. Second reason it's a gift is because it's not only the evidence of salvation, but it's the means of sanctification. It's the means of sanctification. It's through the suffering process that God ultimately uses to change us and conform us. How many believers would sit there and go, amen, amen? If you read James, and many of you have, of going through our one-on-one discipleship process, he says this, and, and you know it well, but listen. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, the suffering for righteousness' sake, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking and nothing. Karl Barth, I don't often quote him, but he, he's certainly right here. He says, the grace, now listen, the grace of being permitted to believe in Christ is surpassed by the grace of being permitted to suffer for him, of being permitted to walk the way of Christ and with Christ himself to the perfection of fellowshipping with him. Here's what he's saying. When you first come to faith in Jesus Christ, as a baby believer, you merely look for the benefits of Jesus' work on the cross. As you grow in Christ, as you grow in maturity in Christ, it's not just what you are receiving, even though you will continue to receive all the wonderful benefits and blessing of being with Jesus Christ, but now you want to take part in the suffering of Jesus Christ. That's the demonstration. Let me say it this way. People first come to church, they first get saved. What do we do? We treat them like babies. We're just kind of, come on now, we gotta go to a small group. This is what you got to do. Now, this is how you read the Bible. Now, this is how you study. Well, listen, uh, that's good. I, I, I need to come, but I don't have any gas money. Here's 20 bucks. Put a little bit of gas in the, in the gas tank. You come on. Yeah, but I'm struggling. I don't have fun. Here's some food. This is what happens when you're a baby. When you begin to grow up, guess what you begin to do? Pull out the $20 bill. Lead them. Talk with them. What are you doing? You are now sacrificing You are now doing what Jesus Christ did for you, the same sacrifices he made for you. You're now bending that outwards. That's a demonstration of growth in Jesus Christ. And God uses it to be able to grow us. But why in the world would there be suffering? I think this is something, I I wonder if this study in Philippians and suffering for righteousness, say, I wonder if this is something that we need to pull out in 5, 10, 15 years. I wonder if we need to pull this out after the election. You say, well, Brother Mike, what do you mean? It, it could go either way. Yeah, but is either way very good? Right? You're like, hmm, which one should I choose? Hmm, bleep, bleep. Okay, there we go. Right? No, no. Look, let me say something. There is a lot on the line in this election, and it's called the Supreme Court. 
So you need to make sure that you understand. You may not like in, in individuals, but you need to make sure that the Supreme Court stays the way that it is. And, and we have more conservative people on that Supreme Court, all right? Huge decision. We're going to cut that out in the message. But anyway, that's just for free, all right? But here's what, here's what I want you to say. Why in the world, why in the world would, why would the world and Satan hate? Why, why would God's people suffer on this earth at the hands of the unrighteous? The Bible's full of Genesis to Revelation. It tells us that, that which, that's what you can expect as a believer. I think the answer is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, very quickly. Paul says this. Listen to this scripture. Very interesting. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, now listen, I am filling up with what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. When we talk about Christ going to the cross, we talk about the fact that he accomplished it all, amen? That he died on the cross and and through his death, that he accomplished all that is necessary for the wrath of God to be taken from us. Do you agree with that? Okay, I need a little bit more than that, all right? Okay, I just want to make sure, or this sermon's going a completely different way, all right? Well, that's, that's the way we desire that. It, we, that's what we understand. So when Paul says that there was something lacking in his suffering, he's not speaking of the fact that there was something lacking in his sacrifice that would not allow you and I to be born again by repenting and placing our faith in him. He, what he's saying is what's lacking is that the world and the devil that hates Jesus Christ Their anger and hatred towards Christ was not satisfied with Jesus' death on the cross. Even though the righteous wrath of God was satisfied towards us and towards his children on the death of the cross, those who hated him were not happy when Jesus died because it didn't curtail their anger and their wrath. That keeps going even after Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So what do they do? They want to get their holds on any, their hands on anybody who looks or represents Jesus Christ, that is the church. And so that wrath just continues, and that's what we suffer. And this is what Paul is saying is, the more that you look like Jesus, the more the world will hate you, and the more you are assured to suffer. Now that is a radically different gospel than that's being preached on the airwaves today. What is being preached, and this is what angers your your pastor, is that much of what you possibly listen to or read and authors, their message is a completely different gospel. The message that they're preaching is this, is the more faith you have, the less suffering you will experience. Just have enough faith and you'll have more money and and your, and your money troubles will go away, and all your physical afflictions will go away, and, and people will love you, and, and, and you'll rise up, and you'll be successful in your business the more that you ultimately love Jesus. So get this. The more that you love him, the less suffering is what they propagate. The word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the gospel that Paul preaches is simply this. The more you are like him, the more you indeed will suffer. The more you will suffer. Look what Paul says finally. And he says this, when he says becoming like him in his death, that was a part of all that. We we should share that. But verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is he saying? He goes, man, I want to go to heaven. 
But he doesn't want to go to heaven just simply because he wants to go to heaven and just simply because he doesn't want to have bills. And just simply because his, his, his relationships with spouses aren't going, even though he was single at the time. Bad illustration. But he's not wanting to get to heaven just to escape the present suffering of this time. The reason that he wants to go to heaven is because it's there that his treasure is, the person of Jesus Christ. That's why he wants to know him. It's his treasure in life. He wants to know him in his power. He wants to know him in his sufferings. Why? Because it is Jesus Christ that he desires. There will not be one person in heaven that is there mainly because they were afraid of hell. They will be there because they love Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We honor you. And Lord, we now come to a decision time right before we take the Lord's Supper. God, I just pray right now that, Lord, that you would make our hearts, melt our hearts, melt what is in us, the wickedness that is in us, and let us call out for your mercy and for your grace. God, I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would, you, you would save some, that there would be some here that would sit there and say, I want to know him in this way. Well, it has to begin by repenting of your sin and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That's how the relationship begins. God, there are many here who know that but need to experience it every day. We need to experience that power every day. We need to be changed. I pray that you will change us. We need friends to be changed. I pray that you will change them. God, I pray that we become more like you and that we will actually honor and look forward to the suffering. Lord, this is a prayer of Paul, but could it be our prayer? Would you give us the boldness to pray such a prayer? That God, that we would know you, that we would know you and the power of your resurrection and that we may share in your suffering becoming like you in your death grant this prayer in jesus name we pray amen would you stand would you stand altar is open now's the time to respond i'm going to be here if you want to know more about christ if you want to know this whole gospel thing and salvation i want to share that with you just just come Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about it But right now, let's get our hearts right before the Lord, before the taking of the Lord's Supper. All right. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask our ushers to come at this time as well for the uh, taking of the Lord's Supper.
And uh, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, we want to, uh, we want to, whether you're a member there, you got to.